Well, he is risen. I'm so excited to celebrate Easter with you, the historical reality that we do not follow some guru who gives really good life advice, but God himself who has come to redeem any and every single one of us who would trust in him. And so I'm excited to uh, be with you for a few minutes today. I'm not sure if you are familiar with the story of the man who uh, all of a sudden he wasn't feeling well. He, was, he felt totally fine, started feeling really sick, had all these symptoms. And so his wife rushed him to the emergency room. They ran all of these diagnostic tests to try to figure out what was happening to him. And after all the tests were done, a little while later, the doctor comes into the room and asks his wife if he could please speak to her. And so they go into his office and he begins to explain to her. Uh, and he says, well, there's bad news. Um, it looks really bad, but there's also good news. So your husband is suffering from a number of ailments, but we do know that there is one way for him to survive. And the way for him to get through this is for the next year, he cannot undergo any stress at all. His body needs time to recuperate and to recover. And so if he can make it a year with no stress, he will not die. Which means when he is hungry, you have to make him his favorite meal. When the kids are acting up, you have to discipline them. If he wants to go out of town with his buddies, you have to let him go. If he wants to watch sports all day, every day, you have got to let him do it. If there is anything dirty in the house, it is up to you to get it clean. But if you do this, he will live. So a few minutes later, she leaves the doctor's office and walks back into the room. And her husband says, well, just be honest with me. How bad is it? And she says, honey, I'm really sorry to tell you that you're going to die. <laughs> now, you might not expect me to talk about a story like that to begin this morning, but I share that because today we're going to do something a little bit different than what you might expect on Easter. Instead of reading maybe some of the popular passages in the Gospels of the New Testament, uh, we're going to read an Old Testament passage in Zechariah chapter 3, which might be confusing on first glance what it actually means, but what we are going to see as we see often here at New City Church, is that the entire Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And what we are celebrating and looking forward to today was something that God has always planned for the redemption of anyone who would follow and trust in him. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Zechariah chapter 3. If you don't, there's a black one around you. You can open that up. It'll be on page 837 if you would like to read along. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different than what I normally do on Easter, so I'm not sure if that's a good idea or not. But today, I'm actually going to read most of the text. I've got some notes up with me as well to really explain all that is going on because, of course, our cultural context is so different than what we're about to read here. But if you can track with me throughout all of this at the end, uh, it'll come together and you and I will be able to appreciate what Zechariah is saying and what Jesus did for us, I think, even more deeply. So really quick, uh, just to give you some context, Zechariah chapter 3 that we're re reading right now was a series of visions that the prophet and priest Zechariah had in 520 B.C., so this was a long time ago. The, what was going on here is Israel had been in captivity in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And the king at this point was allowing many of the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. Now, they're still going to be ruled by the Babylonian empire, but he's allowing many of them to go back to rebuild the temple so that they can worship their God. Um, and so that's what they're going to do because it had been destroyed previously by Nebuchadnezzar. And so in chapter three, uh, there is an angel who is essentially a guide for Zechariah. And Zechariah is a series of visions, again, that Zechariah has. And so the he here in verse 1 is the angel that's kind of guiding Zechariah throughout his vision that we're going to read about this morning. And here's what it says. 
It says, Then he, the angel, showed me, Zechariah, the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, real quick, if you are familiar with somewhat with the Bible, the Joshua here is not like the Moses and Joshua leading Israelites into the promised land. A Joshua here is the high priest of Israel in and around 520 BC. And so Zechariah has this vision. He sees the high priest Joshua, and they're coming back from the time of exile. And so Joshua was one of the leaders uh, helping lead the effort to rebuild the temple. And so in this vision, Zechariah is transported into the center of the temple that they're going to rebuild, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, just some quick context so you know what's going on here. Here's a picture of what the second temple eventually looked like. If you can go ahead and throw that on the screen. Um, I know it's a little bit hard to see. You don't have to worry about the words, but this is what the temple eventually looked like. On the outer court, the court farthest away from the temple, what was called the outer court, where pretty much anybody, any Israelite was welcome to go. And then next to the temple, you have the inner court, which was restricted to a lot fewer people could access that. But the inner court is also where the priests would offer their sacrifices. And then if you actually go inside the temple, the tall structure there, only the priests were allowed in the temple. And then in the inside of the temple, the back third of the temple was what is called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. And so what's likely happening here is that Zechariah is seeing uh, the Day of Atonement when the high priest was able to go inside the temple. Now, the, the Holy of Holies was blocked off by a really thick curtain, a really thick veil. This is why in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, where it talks about the veil being torn, it was this idea uh, that the veil is torn, that all of us can now enter the presence of God, not just the high priest, because of what Jesus did. Now, the, high, the Holy of Holies, where the priest could only go one day a year on the Day of Atonement, was an extremely dangerous place because God's presence was there. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 16, when the original tabernacle was being built, here is what the Lord said to Moses as he was putting it together. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, who was the first high priest of Israel, that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die. Because I will appear in the club in a cloud above the mercy seat. So what would happen here, again, only one person, once a year, could enter the Holy of Holies behind the veil, and it was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And this is what Zechariah is seeing here, right? So this is a very big deal. And then here's what it says next, chapter 3 and verse 2 of Zechariah. It says this, <clears throat> The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man, he's talking about Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, real quick, uh, in Israel, uh, when Israel was in captivity, uh, it was depicted by some of the prophets in the Old Testament as, a, as, a, as the Israelites being thrown into a fire and they were being purged or purified during their exile. And so when they were plucked out of the fire, it means God brought them back into Israel. And that is what God is saying here, that he has brought them back, that he has chosen them. Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity or your sin from you. So the angel of the Lord has removed the sin from Joshua, and I will clothe you with festive robes. 
Then I said, this is Zechariah here, let them put a clean turban on his head. So let uh, Joshua have a clean turban as well. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, verse 7, this is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. Verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant, the branch. Uh, now, the branch here in Hebrew was one of the names given to the Messiah, the one who would come to make it possible for everyone to experience God's grace. And so in places like Isaiah, Jeremiah, here in Zechariah, we see the branch being this reference to the Messiah. And basically what's happening here is that they are being told, the high priest is being told that him and his colleagues, what they're doing, the sacrifices that they make at the temple, are symbolic of the day when God will ultimately bring his Messiah and do once and for all what the priests are doing day after day with their sacrifices, that you are pointing towards a future day. And then verse 9, it says this. He says, notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will take the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Now, you read this, and I know it's somewhat confusing what is actually going on here, but what's happening in this passage is that this passage is showing us, uh, or rather, it's raising the question of whether or not a sinful people can build a temple for God, and whether or not a sinful and a broken people can enter into his presence. Right? And so Joshua, the high priest here, is pictured as in being part of this process, and he's entering in the temple of God, but there's a problem. He's wearing filthy clothes. Right? The question is, is Israel God's chosen people from which he's going to send the Messiah to bless the whole world? Is Israel even up to the task of following and honoring God because they have failed, up, they have failed previously to do that? Now, again, what also seems likely happening here is that we are looking at the ceremony that was performed on the Day of Atonement in ancient Israel. And so here's what I want to do. I want to just explain to you how this worked. And if you track with me, I think you're going to see some really cool things. But there's three things, real briefly, that show us that this is likely the Day of Atonement. The first is that the high priest has gone to stand before the presence of God. So Joshua here is in the Holy of Holies, standing before the Lord, which would only have happened on the Day of Atonement. Uh, secondly, this passage is concerned with the removal of sin, right? It talks about removing his filthy clothes. And then in verse nine, it talks about removing sin in a single day. So the day of atonement, the goal was to remove sin in Israel. And so the Israelites would do various sacrifices and rituals throughout the year. But then one day a year, you, had to, you would have the day of atonement where the priest would go before the Lord on behalf of all of Israel to ask the Lord's forgiveness. And then third and finally, there is concern here with the high priest's clothing. So typically, priests wore high, very elaborate, bejeweled, gold, you know, uh, ornaments on his robe and on his dress. And the reason for that was to kind of, in, in human terms, uh, mirror the glory of God. But on the Day of Atonement, he wouldn't wear that. He would wear a white, simple, clean robe instead. So that's what's going on here. Now, here's the challenge when reading the Bible. And if you have ever read the Bible, you have probably experienced this self as well. 
The challenge when you read the Bible is that sometimes when you try to reconstruct certain practices or the preferences of ancient Israel, um, you're not able to do it just by reading scripture alone. So for example, if I had told you, I want you to read in the, in the Old Testament all of the passages that talk about the Day of Atonement, and then I want you to go and act them out, what would happen is very quickly you would find that the, the Bible, the Old Testament, does not give you all of the rules and steps of the Day of Atonement. Right? There would be a lot of things missing that you would have to figure out. There would be a lot of things there that the, you wish the text would tell you, but it wouldn't actually say. And so for the ancient Jews, what they would do is that even though it didn't speak to every possible scenario, they would try to come up with other ways to honor God as best possible to kind of fill in the gaps. Kind of think of it like this. If you have ever gone on YouTube to watch how to fix something, how to make something, how to do something, and you go and you watch a video, and they step and they breeze over, or they explain a step without showing it to you, and you don't know what you're doing, that's very frustrating, right? You're like, no, no, go back. Like, explain what you mean. Like, I, I learned this a little over a year ago when I got into woodworking. I was YouTubing beginner woodworking videos. And I found out very quickly that most people do not know what beginner means, right? And so uh, beginner means I don't know anything. Explain everything. And if you use a word that a woodworker would not know, define it and show me. And so they'd be doing some stuff. But then I got very frustrated because a lot of these videos would have very elaborate tools that a beginner would not have. They'd be talking about mitering a corner at 45 degrees, but then they wouldn't show me what that meant or how to do it. Or they'd say, you want to inset this three-fourths of an inch. I'm like, what does that mean? Inset what? Like I, had no, I was so frustrated. And so eventually, I was after a lot of Googling, I found a beginning woodworking course online that I had to pay for. And it was eight projects. And this guy had multiple camera angles. And he would show and he would explain everything. He would actually show you multiple ways of doing the same thing. Because I did had no idea what I was doing. And so what you would see happen throughout ancient Israel is there was essentially a liturgy that developed over time to fill in the gaps when there was not explicit rules so that the Jews, to the best of their ability, could honor God the best that they know how. And so to really reenact the Day of Atonement, if I told you to go and do that, you would have to read things like the Mishnah and the Talmud, which were ancient rabbinical Jewish texts that, again, showed Jews how to do things in their context and their day, because Scripture does not speak to every specific issue somebody might face. And what you would see is that you would begin to see, really, it would give you a really good idea of what Jews believed and practiced in the first century at the time of Jesus. And what you would find was that there was tremendous concern to ensure that the high priest was ceremonially pure and acceptable to enter God's presence on the Day of Atonement. So let me explain how this would work. For example, the law in ancient Israel said that if you touched a dead body, you would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. So just to be clear, just because you were unclean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you had done anything wrong, but what it did mean is that you could not enter the temple. You could not go where the sacrifices were because you had to wait seven days and had to go through these ritual washings to make yourself pure and acceptable to God. And so the question then would arise, if what would happen, for example, if the high priest were to come into contact with a corpse, let's say five days before the Day of Atonement? Now, you might be like, how, is that, how would that happen? But again, in the ancient world, death was all around you. For us, we have hospice and we have hospitals, and we don't really see death a lot, like in person. In the old days, there were no hospitals. If you were sick or dying, you would die at home. I mean, it was communal. You would be around it everywhere. It's not uncommon for you to come across or with a family member or a friend to see someone who had died. 
The question is, if you're the high priest and you come across a dead body five days before the day of atonement, what are you going to do? Because you can't go to the temple. Well, the, again, the scripture didn't say, so they would, they would do things. So, for example, one of the things you would read in the rabbinical literature is that eight days before the Day of Atonement, the high priest would be removed and essentially situated and lived right next to the temple for eight days to ensure that they would not come across anything seven days or less before the Day of Atonement. Uh, on the day before, on the night before the Day of Atonement, uh, they would keep the high priest up all night. Uh, and, and for many reasons, some of it is they would sit and pray with him. Other priests would pray for him. Uh, they would spend some time going over kind of like the play-by-play of the next day, kind of making sure the high priest knew exactly what to do, when, and all the things he was going to do. And then in the morning, he would take off the robe that he was wearing. In fact, he would not just take one bath. He would take five throughout the day from various sacrifices and things that he would do to make sure that he was ritually uh, purified to go into the temple. He would wash his hands about 10 times on the day of atonement after doing various things to make sure that he was ritually pure. What you will find is there is tremendous concern, tremendous concern to make sure the priest was totally clean and totally acceptable before he entered the temple. And on top of that, people would watch. So on the day of the atonement outside the temple, people would kind of watch and see all the things the priest was doing as he was getting ready to enter the temple. And so what's happening here is that God was giving Zechariah a prophetic vision to show us how God sees us. That in spite of all of these things, the high priest was supposed to do to be pure, to be good, to be moral. Right. Besides all of those things, we cannot clean ourselves because Joshua was still full of filth. That God still sees our hearts, he sees our brokenness, uh, he sees our filth, that we can't hide it from him. And so while certainly it is important to live honorable uh, lives before the Lord, we can't ultimately change our hearts and neither can a sacrifice. What we see happening here in Zechariah 3 is this, that no one is fit for the presence of God. No one. And here's what we like to do in our modern day and age. We love to play the comparison game, right? Well, I'm not the best person, but I'm better than them. Here's the thing. If the high priest of Israel is unfit to experience and go before the presence of of, of God, if he can't do it, good luck to the rest of us. Right, good luck to us. That the, mo- the symbol of purity and holiness over all of Israel, he himself, after going through all of these rituals, still cannot enter the presence of God without spot or blemish. That neither can you, and neither can I. Right, so this text gives us cause to pause and, and perhaps might feel weighty or might feel discouraging. That you and I cannot do things for ourselves, that we cannot clean ourselves up no matter what we have done. We need someone to do it. For us. And so I explain all of that to say that hopefully you and I can now feel some of the shock and horror, horror that Zechariah would feel when he would see this vision and see the high priest covered in filth and defilement. Again, verse 3, it says this Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord. This is a shocking thing to see. In God's presence, he is not clean. He is not bathed. He is not pure. He is not in white robes. He is filthy. 
Now, the English translators really temper down what actually this says here. This is not Joshua just has some dirt on his robes because there's, there's dust everywhere. This literally what this is saying is that he was smeared or covered in human excrement. That was what he looked like. Now, what's crazy to me is as I was studying and preparing for this, I actually came across the ancient depiction where Zechariah later drew what he saw, and this is what it looked like. <laughs> so this is, this is Joshua. Joshua standing before the Lord, filled with a poop emoji. Right? That's what it looked like. Now, this is a big deal. Right now, think of it this way. Like, have you ever shown up or think about like the most important interview or important uh, date or your wedding day or whatever, some like really important days where you have to dress a certain way. Imagine going to that, not just a little underdressed, not just a little dirty, but covered in human excrement. Maybe, maybe that hasn't happened to you. Hopefully it hasn't happened to you. But you probably can relate to anybody, no shame here, show of hands. Anybody ever had a dream where you were not properly clothed? Maybe not any clothes at all. Some of you are like, I see them. They're out here. Come on, raise them up. Jesus rose from the dead. You're clean. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I actually have had this dream multiple times. Now, for me, I'm, it doesn't, it's like it happens, I don't know, every once in a while, but it's been more than once, and I'm always in a different place. But in the dream, I like come to consciousness or whatever, and all I am wearing is a T-shirt. That's it. I don't know how I got there. I don't know what's going on. So every time I've had this dream, I'm like, I'm there, I'm in a T-shirt, and I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is the worst. And so I take my t-shirt, pull it down, and I'm walking like this, like to the woods or like to the bathroom to like try to hide like a penguin. I'm just like trying to get, I am totally embarrassed, right? I am not dressed to be out in public. And this is what Joshua is experiencing only a lot worse. There is a shock to what is going on here. However, that's not the only shock. Here is the other shock, that while he's standing in the presence of God, Satan is there. Right? Verse 1, it says this, Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, the Hebrew word for Satan literally means to accuse, to act as a prosecutor. And this is what Satan is doing in this scene. What really is going on here is that what we're reading is really a judicial scene. What we see here is we have the angel of the Lord seated as the judge, we have Joshua, who is the defendant, who is the accused, and we have Satan, who is the prosecutor, rightly pointing out that he is broken, that he is uh, defiled, that he is not dressed for the occasion. Now, if the, and then what, what we're missing here is somebody arguing on defense on behalf of Joshua. There is no lawyer arguing on his defense. And if the story ended here, it would be quite a sad story. But what we see in this text is that there is someone who appears for the defense, and it's the judge himself, right? The judge is the one that makes him clean, that makes him pure. And so I don't know about you, but I think I would be ready to face any litigation that would come my way if I knew the judge who was going to rule on the case was also going to come to my defense. And that is what is happening in this text. In fact, what happens here is that when the angel of the Lord comes to his defense, he doesn't say, I want you to go out and offer 10 more offerings, or I want you to go and, and, and take more baths, or I want you to go and change your clothes. And he doesn't strike him down and kill him, which he had every right to do. Instead, what does he say? He says, I'm going to clean you up. He says, I will take away, take away your iniquity 
in your sin. That's what it says here in verse 4. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. And then in verse 9, I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. What you read in Zechariah chapter 3 is a salvation that is not earned by works. Again, it's not earned by taking another bath, by doing another thing, by impressing me with your deeds. It is a salvation that comes through grace and mercy alone from the free will of a loving and powerful and gracious God. Even, again, what's happening here, Israel is coming back from exile into Jerusalem, um, from a justifiable exile, mind you, and they have not even finished rebuilding the temple yet, and God already says, I will redeem you. Right? It is God who gives the high priest what he, the righteousness that he cannot earn. It is God who gives him uh, the holiness that he could not create for himself. It is God who gives Joshua the clean garments here. It is God who takes away his sin. And it is God who says, I will deliver you from your sin. And if that is true, what can the accuser say now? If I, the Lord of the universe, am going to do this for you, what can the accuser or what can anyone say now? Now, here's the interesting we're not told, but again, earlier in the chapter, you can probably guess some of the things that the accuser might say, right? That Satan might say here. He might say things like, look at this man, look at his defilement, look at his sin, and he is coming to stand in your presence. How have you not already killed him by now? There is nothing that this man can do to make it right that he would stroll in here looking like that. You should kill him for desecrating your presence and not properly honoring you. And guess what? He should, right? God should. But after getting his clothes changed and his sin removed, what now can the accuser say? That God himself has come to his defense to make him pure and clean. The question, though, is how? How is this going to happen? Well, the third and final shock you would have if you're reading this as an ancient Jew, kind of understanding the context here, is that it says in Zechariah 8 and 9 that a day is coming where he says, I will bring my servant, the branch, which is the Messiah, and I will take away the iniquity or the sin of this land in a single day. How in the world is God, when there's uh, sacrifices day after day, going to stop it once and for all? Now, you know, we know the undertones of what's coming up here, but if you're Zechariah, just put yourself in Zechariah's shoes for a second. Um, you are a priest, and so you earn your living uh, offering sacrifices and standing in behalf of Israel. Right? And so what would happen every day, you would offer sacrifices, you would run the temple or the tabernacle, make sure everything was going according to plan all day, every day. And there were certain festivals and holidays on top of the normal things that would kind of keep you employed and keep you busy. And if you remove sin in a single day, he's probably thinking, well, I'm not going to have a job anymore. Like, what am I going to do if this is all taken care of? This would have been a shocking statement to a priest that all the things that I'm doing will no longer be necessary especially, again, as we are getting ready to rebuild the temple so that we can do all these sacrifices. And you're, and you're telling me, yet one day, none of this will need to, need to happen anymore. 
right? And context, this is why, in Hebrews chapter 10, and it'll be on the screen, this is why the first century, particularly the Jewish Christians, would have so much shock, knowing the day of the atonement, knowing the role of the priests, and how they offer sacrifices, and how they were in an intermediary for the Jews, to then go and read something like this, based on what Jesus has done. It says this, chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law has only a shadow, it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in the sacrifice, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so we have to keep offering them and keep doing these things and keep being reminded of our sin because none of these things can stand once and for all in place of all of the sin and all of the brokenness. But then it says this in verse 11 of chapter 10, after he's talking more about the sacrifices, it says this, uh, every priest stands day after day. This is what Zechariah would have done. Ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, this Messiah, this branch, this Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Priests were not supposed to sit because their job was never done. But yet for Jesus, he did it. Verse 13, it says, He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected those forever who are sanctified. This is why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, one of the last things that he said was, it is finished. What did he accomplish? Brokenness, sin, sacrifice, this perfect God-man who came to stand in our place accomplished for us what not even the high priest of Israel, with all of his rituals, with all of his washings, with all of his holiness, not even he, not even the best of the best could do. He did for us. And what's also really cool, I want to really quickly here point out just a couple of literary parallels uh, leading up on the week of the Day of Atonement for Israel and the week of Jesus' death where he ultimately took the atonement for all humanity. You see, again, as we mentioned earlier, the high priest had a week where he was separated for death. For eight days, he was kind of quarantined from society so that nothing would come in his path to make him unclean. Well, we also know that Jesus also had a week leading up to his death, but he was not separated. He was in the midst of daily life, talking, forgiving, loving, and healing people. He spent a week telling his disciples that he was going to die. Jesus also had an all-night vigil. Just like the, day, the high priest would have a vigil, he had a vigil, but it didn't include his friends staying by his side to comfort him and to pray with him through the night. Right? What happened, if you know the story, you can read about it in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, that three times his disciples would fall asleep on him. They could not even stay up to pray. The high priest, all alone and abandoned. We also see that Jesus himself had a special dress on his day of atonement. He had his garments removed. You can read about this in Matthew, Mark, and John. And they were replaced with a, mark, a mocking purple robe. 
As the Roman soldiers bound him and beat him, they took his clothes off. He's supposed to be the king of the Jews. They give him a mocking purple robe. And we also see that Jesus also had a special hat. In Zechariah, in chapter 3, verse 5, Zechariah cries out that Joshua would be giving a, a clean and a nice new turban to wear. Jesus had a hat to wear as well, and it was a crown of thorns. And just like the high priest who would go through a ritual bathing, Jesus also had a ritual bath, but it was in the spits of those who mocked him. It was his blood caked over his body as the whip and the cat of nine tails ripped his flesh from his back. Yet, unlike Joshua, who went through all of these things, it was still stood before the presence of God, uh, disgusting and dirty, we see that Jesus, in spite of all of this, goes before God without a spot or without a blemish. That Jesus stood before the Lord with no sin. This is our high priest. This is why you and I, no matter who you are, what you have done, or what has been done to you, can go boldly into the presence of God. Because he, not you, have cleaned you up. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 will be on the screen. The Apostle Paul writes this, He made the one, God made the one, who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That God, that G, that God clothed Jesus in our sin. He took our punishment so that we, like Joshua, can be given pure, clean, white robes. This is what we celebrate on Easter. Again, not some guru that says, do these things, and if you do enough, then I'll let you in. He says, you cannot do it on your own, and purely out of my love for you, I have come to invite you in. No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter what you did last night or this week, it is not about you. It is about him. And this is why we celebrate. Not because we're a room full of people or billions of people across the globe today are celebrating their own effort. We're celebrating the God who, in spite of our brokenness, invites us in. And so look right at me. No matter what you think you have done, no matter what you actually have done, as the as tape plays to your head of how you have lied to people, how you have uh, hurt people, how you have been greedy, how you have been selfish, we can say the same thing that Joshua would say after the angel of the Lord redeemed him in front of Satan. Who can accuse me now? If Jesus has done this for me, who are you? And this is why the last text we'll read in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 34, Paul says this in light of what God has done for us in Jesus. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. But even more, he has been raised. And he is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. This is the vine that says in chapter 10, verse 10 of Zechariah 3 that you and I are invited to sit under. One of the things we say often here at New City Church is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. Why? Because Jesus did it for you. Jesus did it for you. And look right at me. If you do not yet know Jesus this morning, that is not true of you. You have everything to prove and you have everyone to impress and good luck and good luck. But the grace of God says it's not up to you. 
It is what I have done for you. And so that said, I want to close with two thoughts as we reflect on the good news of the resurrection of Jesus this morning. In light of what we read in Zechariah chapter 3, the first one is this, is that there is no accusation that Jesus cannot cleanse you of. Nothing. Paul, who wrote about in Romans, used to kill Christians before he became one. In the vision that Zechariah see, Joshua is the most profane you can be, and he enters into the presence of God, and yet he is redeemed. Lying, cheating, uh, death, murder, there is nothing that you can do that Jesus cannot cleanse you of. You are, one of the things that I, I, when I talk to people, one of the things we can think of is like, well, you don't know what I've done. And you're right. I don't know what you have done either, but who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do? When God says it is finished, when he says, I have redeemed you, that is what he means, that I have stood in your place. There is no accusation that Jesus cannot cleanse you of. And last and finally, here's what we will walk away with, and that's this, that your redemption is determined by God's grace, not your effort. Listen, we celebrate Easter not because we are good people who did a really good job this week trying to be a really nice person so that God would be happy with us today. We celebrate Easter that even if last night you blew it royally, God's grace is still sufficient for you. It is still sufficient for you. It reminds me, I've shared this before, but it's not a perfect analogy, but here's what this reminds me of. Right? When we go before the Lord and we think of our brokenness and our shame and our undeservedness for redemption, we think of his grace and what he has done for us. It reminds me when I was in eighth grade, I was homeschooled from third to seventh grade, Eighth grade, I went back to school, and you know, you get your report card every quarter, and so the first quarter, I got all A's and B's, which is great, and then uh, every nine weeks, they would give you an interim report, like between, right? And so my first interim report, after the first quarter, um, they give it to you on a Friday, and so me and my friends, we lived pretty close to the school, and so we would walk home, and uh, my A's and B's all turned into C's and D's, and I honestly, I don't know why, I think I just like, whatever, stopped caring, whatever, and uh, as I'm walking home, I'm saying my goodbyes to my friends, this is it. I'm not going to see you again. Uh, you, hey, Kyle, you can take the basketball hoop. Aunt you, you can take my shoes. You can take my bike. I mean, I'm just like, giving it away, right in my will. I'm like, this is it. I am dead. I'm dead. And so we get home, and I don't remember all that happened. I think we had already planned to go to the movies that night. And so me and my brothers and my parents, we go to the movies, and I'm just like, well, one last hurrah. <laughs> I hope it's a good one, right? And I remember going into the movie theater. We're in the lobby, you know, where you get the popcorn and everything. And my parents sit me down with him at the table. And I'm like, oh, I don't even get to see the movie. Like, they took me here just to write in public. I mean, can we? And I'm like, this is it for me. I'll never forget my parents saying, Dylan, you have a bunch of C's and D's. Um, that's not acceptable. When your report card comes out, we expect to see a bunch of A's and B's. Now let's go watch a movie. And I was like, yeah, but, like, what Like. What happens though? Like, I'm in trouble, right? And nothing, right? Nothing. They knew that this was not acceptable. I knew it wasn't acceptable. And I knew that I needed to change. And guess what happened when I got my next report card? They killed me because I had to, no, I'm just kidding. I got A's and B's, right? I can't. Now, again, it's not the perfect analogy, but this is what God does for us that you and I, we bring our C's and our D's and our F's before the Lord. And what do we expect? Condemnation. We expect, how dare you? We expect you shouldn't have showed up here this morning. You know how long it's been since the last time you walked to a church? That's what we expect. And what does God say? I love you. God says, it is finished. God says, you are invited in. And that is what we celebrate on Easter morning. That no matter who you are, no matter what your report card says, that Jesus hung on the cross to invite you. 
And so what I want to do, I want you to turn your attention to the screen. I want you to hear a story of a couple in our church who have experienced God's redemption, redemption for themselves. And you can check it out. Bob and I met at our old church um, in 2014. I had been attending um, the church for a year and had never met Bob. Um, and then I joined the Greek team. I had decided after a year I was ready to jump in and start serving. And I joined the Greek team, and Bob was head of the Greek team and coordinated and scheduled everybody. But he went to a different service. And so one Sunday he was asked to come to the 11 o'clock service, which I was greeting at, um, and walked in and, and had didn't know who I was, but then thought, I know I've scheduled everybody. That must be Lane. So he came up and started talking to me, and so that's how we met. I had the opportunity of meeting Dylan uh, back at uh, LifePoint Church, where he was an intern, and... I knew of New City. Um, I had heard the name, but coming up Glenwood one day uh, during the pandemic, I noticed the sign. And I just kind of went, oh, that, that's Dylan's church. And uh, we decided to give New City a try and we really uh, enjoyed it. Uh, we got plugged in right away, got into a community group right away um, and um, have enjoyed it since. Uh, New City Church has impacted me, um, especially on Sunday mornings. I feel like I leave here learning something new about the Bible or about the Lord. And um, so I feel like I'm really growing in my faith in a way I wasn't before in church. So that I would say that's the one of the biggest ways it's impacted me. Another way has been the people here just... Um, being so welcoming mm -hmm. and down to earth. I, there's no pretension. And um, I just feel like I can be myself. And that's been a real blessing. The, the verse that comes to mind that I believe is all over these walls here is in Philippians when Paul writes, um, at Philippians 2, consider others better than yourselves. That is such a powerful verse to me. And I see it here at New City. I also see when Paul writes to the Philippians, he writes, you know, I thank God every time I think of you. And I really believe if Paul visited New City on a Sunday morning, he would write that same letter back to you, Dylan, and say, I thank God every time I think of you. And I mean that. I came to know the Lord when I was 12 and walked with him for many years, but I was in a place of, um, uh, sadness still for many years um i had had a some trials in my childhood um sometimes battled uh depression at times but i just remember um there were times that i would pray with others um and during a prayer time one time i it was actually um someone who had hurt me and the Lord showed me Jesus in between me and that person and Jesus being, uh, experiencing, um, the, um, scourging that he did, uh, before he went to the cross in between me and that person. And I just was so overwhelmed with that love that he was showing me that he took on all that sin. He took on my sin. He took on the sin of the person hurting me. 
and he bore it on his body. And just seeing that picture of Jesus as I prayed was so powerful um, and real to me that that was a moment that I, uh, it changed me mm -hmm. forever and how I looked at how Jesus forgives. I did a lot of things for acceptance. I can go back to high school, I can go to college, young adulthood, you know. You do various things because you want to be accepted. You want to be a part of the crowd, if you will. And here, even in my, you know, not later years, but advanced years, um, I've learned that uh, he's enough. Jesus is enough for me. So I don't really feel like I need to do things to be accepted. He accepts me and that's good enough. I'm a little bit, and I say this word, jealous for those that have known Jesus from a baby. And I love the kids over at New City Kids. They're learning about Jesus at an early age. And I think that's awesome. But for me, it wasn't until I'm 47. But it's it's the story's not over. And so uh, coming to him has taken me from, I would say, this struggle to be accepted, to be accepted in the most loving way possible. What would I say to the person that thinks God can't love or forgive them? Um, it's a lie. Um, it's a lie. And I know that might be hard to grasp because I've been there where you can't think any other way, but it's a lie. Um, God loves you right where you are. I know how that feels because I used to feel that way too. Deep down, I really didn't believe deep down God really loved me and forgave me. I looked at him more as a, a father mm -hmm. that if I did something wrong would hurt me, um, and I was scared of him. But I found that when I started connecting to other believers in the church and experiencing the love of God through them directly, then I experienced God's love also, and I came to realize he does love me and mm -hmm. he does um, forgive, but uh, it, was the, it was really the hands and feet of other believers that helped me with that. The story's not over. Um, the story's not over. When Jesus died on the cross, um, all of his friends, his mother, close ones by him thought, well, it's over, hope is gone, and Jesus rose. Um, and for us, the story's not over. Even in the um, good days, bad days, sometimes challenging parts of any day, we can kind of feel that, that weight, that burden. Um, but he's there, as Lane says, he's there, he's alive. Um, the story's not over, he's with us.